On this week's episode of Bet the Process, we are going to be talking about how much it sucks to lose and how Rufus and I deal with losing and how gamblers deal with losing. And then we will have a special appearance by Tom Haberstroh, who is not a gambler, but is one of the pioneers in the world of analytics in the NBA. And we'll be talking about the playoffs and his big prediction of a big upset that if it came through would be a nice payday for some of you out there. As always, the Bet the Process podcast is brought to you by the Sports Action app. It's the best app for sports bettors, for following all your picks, for getting great sports content, and it's available for free on the iTunes store and on Google Play. So download it today. And so with that, let's start the process. Welcome to another off-season episode of the Bet the Process podcast, where Rufus Peabody, Peabody, and I um, talk about all things process-driven gambling, analytics, etc. Um, today, we'll be doing a recap of the bloodshed that was the Masters. Uh, we're going to be talking about how Rufus and I cope with losing, and also just the general like strange uh, cognitive biases we have around this kind of stuff. And then later we'll be joined by Tom Haberstroh um, to talk a little bit of NBA playoffs. He is not a gambler as far as I know, but he is someone that is, um, you know, analytics driven. And so it'll be interesting to sort of try to glean some insights from him about the NBA from someone who isn't thinking about this in terms of necessarily odds and lines, et cetera. So before we get to him, Rufus, how are the masters for you? Uh, It was not good. Not good at all. I was loaded against Bubba and loaded against Henrik. And actually, a few Bubba matchups won. Um, who beat him? Uh, Fowler beat him. Uh, McElroy pushed. Ram and, beat him. And uh, yeah. But did he? And, and, uh, and oh, didn't. So yeah, yeah, Rom did. And, 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 so and Speeth um, beat him. Speeth beat him also. And Speeth. So yeah, so, so that wasn't like, I mean, yeah, that was like three and eight on those matchups, basically. But then still. Um, <laughs> But 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 none of my stents and matchups won, and I was like on every. It may tell everyone. Awesome. It may tell everyone how rough the Masters was when Rufus says, "Well, three and eight wasn't so bad." True. I think my overall return on investment for the Masters was something like negative thirty something percent, but with the volume I had, it like we're we're not even gonna go into detail on this. Let's just say it was one of your worst betting experiences ever. Can we leave it at that? Without yeah, we can any leave numbers. It at that. Yeah, that sounds good. Um, does something like this impact how you think about your models? Like, do you adjust anything based on this? Or do you, you kind of think like this is an outlier, it's one event? Just like you said when we were talking about like Tiger's performance, you just chalk it up as one event and move on. Yeah, someone actually asked me, someone in the remote your group asked me the similar question before the Masters. They said like, if after a golf event, do you go back and look and sort of debrief and, and, and figure out where you were right and where you were wrong? And I said, no, I don't, because the model adjusts and, and you're not going to glean any real information from one event. Like, yeah, for next year, my coefficients for the regressions will probably be updated. Uh, in fact, I'm certain they will. But, you know, you it's it's one event. And what's interesting is to look back at the different years um, of different golf tournaments. So for example, the masters had been the golf tournament that I'd done the best on historically. It seemed like, or at least out of the, out of the majors for sure. Um, it seemed like Bubba won in 2012. We made it, we won big on that. Um, Adam Scott won. We won that year. We had a really good last two years on it as well. I think maybe this is the second losing masters I've had, but, but normally if you look at other events, like there's one year where, where I, I might've had a, like I had a really, really poor event. Um, I forget what it was. Um, I had a really poor U.S. Open uh, a few years back, and then the next one I killed it. Um, I mean, those are different courses, but at the same time, like even events on the same course, you can have a really poor year one year, and using basically exactly the same model, have a really good year because it really comes down to um, how just a few players do, like in the scheme of things, right? I mean, Henrik Stenson. I was loaded up against Stenson and Bubba, and basically those determined a ton of um, those how how those players fared had a huge impact on how I did. Whereas like yeah, the make the, miss cut 
that, which like, you know, I actually made money overall. Um, um, well, actually I broke even on the make miss cuts, but that's, you know, that involved a lot more players, but it didn't have the same financial uh, impact, obviously. So what's interesting is like, if you listen to or watch the broadcasts on this, like, you know, they talked about Stenson and they're like, Oh, you know, it's hard to believe such a great golfer has never performed well here. And I just kept thinking back to like our process driven comments, which were that, you know, he hits the three wood well, 290, which isn't like the skill set that pays off at the masters and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And and then with, with Bubba, you know, the, the narrative that he's overrated because at the masters, because he's one, two there. Um, and the reality is he hasn't finished particularly well in any of his other performance. I think he said 20 was the highest, yeah, 20 uh, the highest. exception of those, those two. So, you know, you go back on it and I, I still believe um, in that process. I believe in that reasoning. Like for me, you know, like we, we, we talked about off air, like how do you deal with losing? For me, I go back to like the process behind, you know, the nature of or the, the title of this broadcast is bet the process. And because the process behind which we came to those conclusions, even though they did not yield good results, we're still sound things that I think about. It's when I go back and I say, God, that wasn't sound process-driven thinking that led me to make that bet or something like that. Like we um, play some uh, bets um, in the NBA and this year, even more so than any of the, the, the tanking um, has been incredible. Um and so you wonder if the process by which we're coming to some of these bets, um, when we can't even, you know, our data set probably doesn't even understand tanking quite the way that it's being done right now. The other night, and we don't, you know, obviously bet like the last couple of weeks of the season, but the other night you had a situation where Dallas um, needed to lose the game to basically stay in a three-way tie for you know second or third West worst record in the league. And they were playing Phoenix, and Phoenix had already clinched the worst record in the league. Dallas, Phoenix has no one playing anymore. Like they literally had like seven or eight players available. Probably their top seven or eight players aren't even playing. And Dallas is at home with, you know some players certainly if they wanted to they opened as like a you know like a six point favorite it got bet down to three it got bet back up to four and a half and then by game time it went down to two and a half they were up by i think 10 at halftime dallas was i know you don't follow the nba can you guess what the final score was i'm guessing they lost by no they won no they lost that's my guess and i'm guessing they rested their starters in the second half they lost by 30. <laughs> Damn. They got cremated in the second half. And it's incredible to think about how absurd that is. Like the NBA wants to charge this integrity fee to sports betting. They need to like use that integrity <laughs> fee to pay players to actually try yeah. in the last couple of weeks of the season. Although do um, you think like, I mean, if it was, uh, you know, if they're trying to lose the game, there's a difference between losing and then losing by 30 points. You know, once once you're down by twenty, you're like, okay, I can like show a little bit of uh, try to show off my skills a little bit, right? I don't think the play, you know, I don't think the players. I mean, like, I personally do don't you think, think the players, players are taking. No, I don't think so. But I, I do so think either. that I think that there's just this notion. I mean, the NBA is like last night there were some games, like the the um, Clippers and the Lakers played, and the Clippers were two and a half point favorite in that game. Um, the Lakers were like literally playing a D league team, like guys that hadn't or G league, whatever it's called guys that hadn't been in the, in the league until recently um, for, for good parts of the game. Um, and they beat the Clippers who were pretty much playing. They weren't resting anyone on purpose. Um, they definitely in the fourth quarter and, you know, rested some guys and, and kind of just gave up, but they lost by 15 points. So I, I just think that in the NBA, it's really easy for people to just, you know, like not necessarily care about making winning plays. They might try hard. They might take kind of dumb shots and try to play hard on D at times. And, you know, I think definitely like one of the things that Rick Carlisle, the Dallas coach was getting crap for 
was not coming back with his best players in crunch time and playing, you know, intentionally playing younger players. And, and Cuban had a line right. where he said something about that. I mean, I, I think that you can you can basically create lineups in situations that make it really hard for you to win games. Um, but certainly that that's anomaly. The kind of that, that's the kind of taking I've always thought that does exist. Like, not, not players trying less hard. Maybe players are playing because they're more concerned about their own stats versus uh, the team winning the game. But yeah, I think coaches putting a, putting a bad lineup out there is the easiest way to do it. Yeah, for sure. So when you, when you go to something like that, like when, when, you know, you and I were texting during the masters and you, uh, yeah. you were, you weren't, you weren't in a good place at times. Um, how, how do you deal with that? Like how, like what, you know, I told you, I like kind of try to focus on the process. How, what do you focus on? So I, in a way I keep my expectations low. And and so I kind of reset. So an example is after I think the first or second day, I, my combined matchups were down like a hundred strokes or something crazy like that. And and I woke up the next day and that was my new baseline. Like I woke up in a good mood and I was like, okay, if I if if we can improve off of that, you know, or improve off of where I think we were going to be financially, then that would be a good day. So I kind of was expecting the worst to happen, and then anything. Um, if something better happens, I'd be pleasantly surprised. So but that's like, I guess it's, it's actually it's, like it's classic adjusting, right? You just read, you right. Read I was going to say mental accounting, mental yeah. accounting, well, right? I mean, it's, 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 we, it's, it's wealth differences are what matter to us, not absolute wealth. And so I basically made that change in my head from being even at the beginning to being negative. I don't want to tell you how much it is. Um, and then, you know, it either got worse or better from there. But once, but but the great thing about this stuff too, though, is that once the once the event's over this week, there's another golf event, and I'm I'm at zero for this week, and so I you can kind of move on to the next week. What's the volume difference in terms of like just percentages that you a get lot. down on a regular? So so it is a lot like the Masters, Super Bowl. Those are going to dictate a lot of like what kind of a year you have. Yeah, I've gotten creamed on both of them actually. But I'm still slightly, I'm still up for the year, not by a lot. Um, so it's been, it's been three and a half months of like work, you know, minimum wage work basically. But yeah, yeah it's, it's amazing how a few events will, will, can have a big impact. But at the same time, like the volume, the volume I'm getting on a, you know, I'm, I'm going to get as much volume on like two weeks in baseball or two and a half weeks in baseball as I did in the masters, for example. Right. Um, so in terms of just like other sort of, you know, like we, we talked a little about the crazy psychological biases that, that happened to us as, as gamblers. Um, one of the ones I think that, that we all struggle with is a, a, a bet we miss, like a bet that, you know, for whatever reason, the model didn't run correctly, or like, uh, there was like a, a data problem and there was a bet you should have made that you realize afterwards that you didn't make. Um, oftentimes for me, those are one of the most painful things to deal with. And, and I'm not even sure why that is, you know, th there's nothing ventured, nothing gained at that point, but there's this, you know, the FOMO that you have with those bets, um, that, that can to make you maddened. And I, I don't really know, <laughs> I don't have an, a solution for this because for some reason, this, this is one of those maddening things. Um, I talked to, um, our friend Preston about this sometimes and and he talks about how these are the things that can get you on tilt the, the most you, yeah, you do you share that sentiment process. or you are what's oh, that? I, I completely share that sentiment because you, you your process you, you missed a bet because your process was wrong or something so you're like okay if my process was right i would have had this i would have placed this bet you know if things if right. i things had gone as i expected them as i wanted them to go i would have placed this bet i find myself if i miss that bet rooting against the bet because I, in, in, in as irrational as that is, because then I'm like, I fucked up by, you know, not following the process in some way or oversleeping or whatever it was versus it's better to fuck up and get away with it than fuck up and not get away with it, I guess. But the thing is, you know, if the bets would have won, it's sort of in a way signals that your process is solid, right? So, but at the same time- I guess one of the things that I always try to do- Sorry. Yeah. What I always try to do is instead of like thinking about it in terms of, oh, I cost myself, let's say like hypothetically speaking, I have $100 on a game or something like that. Instead of thinking when that bet wins, like I cost myself $100, I, 
I always try to think about what the EV, what the expected value of that bet would have been. And that's really what right. I cost myself. So let's say that the bet was like a 2% edge. What did I cost myself? Like $2 really? So should I really be that upset about that $2 or should I just like, know it's just one of many bets and it just happened to win? I try to tell myself that, but it, it never really, really seems to work. It's hard. Back, back when, um, back when I was working with a bigger operation, um, or basically if someone messed up, like we would, we were concerned with how much EV they cost us. if they placed a bad bet or something like that. It wasn't about, I mean, it, it wasn't, Oh, you placed a bad bet and it won like, you know, yay. Like we're $20,000 richer. No, it was like, if you placed a bad bet, um, in it, in the bet had like a negative, like $500 of expected value. That's like, that's how your performance is being judged, evaluated, you know, Yeah. which I think that's a process driven way of doing it, but it, it still doesn't change the fact that like, you know, it, it's really hard when you see that this bet one that you should have placed. So that that's how we dealt with actually the blackjack stuff, to be honest, is like, we, we did look at like EV. Um, that's how we got paid. That's everything was based on EV. Everything was based on process. And if you happen to win more than, than your EV was, then you got bonused out and the bonus was split amongst the players and the investors, et cetera. That's um, great because it's, it's process driven and it, 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 it incentivizes the right thing. Yeah, for sure. Um, it was, we were very, we were pretty advanced in how we thought about a lot of this stuff, you know, now that I think back on it. So how do you feel touching on that subject? You, you know, the principle, you know, the sort of concept of a free roll, right? Where someone is basically getting um, the upside from a bet, but no downside. Yeah. I don't want to just say, let's say you have someone on a free roll for a season. Um, you think that they can, they have a winning model or something and you are willing to trust that. That's actually how I got my start um, with people I worked with back in 2009. They, they gave me a free roll uh, betting baseball. And the question is this, what happens if let's say a few months into the free roll or halfway through, you're down a lot of money. So it, if it, I'm who, if I'm the investor that's giving the free roll. Yeah. I mean, so, so the bets are down. What do you think of the incentives there? Because then at some point, does the, does the person that's getting the free roll have an incentive to go wild and crazy because they no longer, they, they no longer have, um, there's no downside and, and for them to get paid, they need crazy upside to happen. Well, I think that's a really, it, 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 the, the importance right there is that you're free rolling and aligning your, yourself with someone that's disciplined and that's going right. to make the same decisions regardless of, I mean, where you are or what your PL is. I mean, a, a lot of this, you know, a lot of the bad decisions come, you know, in, in when people are over betting their bankroll. So right. if people are over betting their, if, you know, if you have a big bankroll, if you have, you know, million dollar bankroll or whatever, and you're down, you know, tens of thousands of dollars, it's, it's not that big a deal. If your bankroll is like $50,000 and you're down tens of thousands of dollars, it's a really big deal. So I think it's just important that you don't overbet your bankroll because that's what ends up making people make bad decisions um, versus like actual, um, you know, like, like you're saying. And, and I think it's, you know, the, the free roll thing is, is tough because you really have to fundamentally believe in that person. And I know you and I, there's probably only, a, there's very few people that you and I would actually like free roll because there are very few people that we believe have, have winning systems. Well, it would have to be over a very long time horizon too. That, that's the key, the time horizon. Like free rolling over one season, I think if you talk to my former partners, they would say in retrospect, that probably wasn't the smartest move of theirs. Um, somebody once, and also back in 2009, like a, a colleague of mine actually, this is when I didn't have any money, um, you know, basically free rolled me um, 20% on Super Bowl prop betting. And I had a phenomenal year, but at the same time, like that was a, looking back on it, that was a really stupid decision by that colleague, you know, because there's a good chance it could have lost. and 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 the upside from the, you know, didn't justify it. But what you were saying, like, that it has to do with overbetting. And I, I'm, I'm, I wasn't really, that's not what I was getting at. I was sort of getting at the fact that let's say you have a free roll for one season and you're coming to the end of it. And it's right. basically, a, no, I understand. The whole, the like the point of a free roll is to align incentives, right? 
yeah, and, no, no, and I, you get to a point where if, if you had some negative variance, a bad run, whatever, yeah. like incentives are no longer aligned because the, because the person isn't going to make any money. And, and so yeah, I mean, at that I, point, I think they want to take to a huge risk. Yeah. I, I, I think that you have to believe that the free roll person, I don't know if the incentives are as misaligned as you're sort of saying, because like that person who's, you know, banking the free roll still wants, you know, his incentive is still to get to a profit, right? Still to get in the black and like, assumingly, what if it's impossible if you impossible to have enough bets to actually get back there? Like, let's say there's a few days left in the season. Do oh, you so you're saying like that, a 100 that, unit play? I mean, I don't know. At some point, there's got to be some integrity by that free roll person where he doesn't want to like show that he was down 30 units and would rather just show that he was down 15 for the season. That's true. I'm not, I'm not as worried about that. Here's what I'm more worried about in that situation. So when you have a situation where you, like, over a longer course of a season, um, continue to lose, and, you know, when do you, when do you stop? Like, for you, like, I know that you, you, you stop betting baseball around the all-star season and all-star break, and I, I'm assuming that that wasn't always the case, that there was a point where you decided to start doing that. Um, yeah. I know that there's gamblers that will stop, you know, I, I talked to someone that was betting baseball this year that basically stopped like four or five days into the season. Cause he was just like, you know, like maybe he doesn't feel that strongly about baseball, but he's like, something is weird for me and my model this year. Um, wh- what do you, wh- when would you stop? Or do you stop? Like, how do you cope with that idea of like overcoming loss or overcoming short-term variance? And, and when does short-term become long-term enough to make you change your mind? Well, I think if I think I'm going to continue to win, if I'm if I believe in that process, I'll keep going. If if there's some sort of fundamental difference that makes me believe that my model is no longer working the way I expected it to, then that's when I would question it. So, for example, if if I stop getting um, favorable line moves towards my bets, and to be honest, so far this baseball season, I'm I'm up, but it, like I'm up like 10% return, but I've not gotten the same line moves that I. Um, I did last season, like last season, for example, I beat the closing line by three and a half percent on average, the closing pinnacle number. Um, whereas so far um, this year, I'm only up a half a percent on the closing pinnacle number. So basically no line move my way. Um, so that's something that I'm monitoring pretty closely. And I'm like, is, does it have to do with the fact that there's still some people are factoring in spring training stuff more and I don't actually factor that in at all. And it honestly, it should be weighted a little bit early in the season, but I haven't put in the time to actually do that. Um, maybe that's something, I don't know. Um, but back to what you said, the fact I do stop betting baseball at the all-star break because, well, I need, I need time to prep for football, but the bigger reason is because I've never, ever had a winning July betting. And even in the back tests, back, back tested version of my model, um, like before I even started betting it, um, July's were not winning months. And I was sort of like, well, that's probably randomness, right? But after after a few years of it and continuing, I'm like, well, there, you know, there's there's something going on there. And I've actually done some empirical investigation into it. And things do change a little bit around the All-Star break, the week or two before and after. Um, things things are a little bit different. Um, I don't want to get into exactly how, but but you know, that, it sort of takes me back to uh my first my first season betting baseball in the way I do now. Um, was 2010 and we were we just destroyed it the first um the first three months of the season up through the end of at the end of june we were up nine hundred thousand dollars for the year um and we basically gave back like seven hundred thousand of that um yeah. in july in july and in early august before like throwing in the towel and that that was honestly that's probably the lowest moment i've had um and, and we also had a bad run in golf at that point too and so, and NASCAR, and it was, it was the lowest, it was definitely the lowest um, point I had in my, in my gambling career, because at that time I didn't, I, I was relatively new to it. I'd been doing it for, you know, a year and a half, um, if that, and I didn't have a huge bankroll. Um, and yeah, well, what was, Jeff, what was your lowest moment? Like, what was, when you most I mean, doubted like yourself, in, what, what was the most painful, like, just, I, I don't mean, I don't mean the most, emo- like, pain from one loss. I mean, when you sort of question things like where you're like, okay, like I'm just, I'm just worn down from this constant losing. 
I mean, to be honest, it's it's close to like now. Like we we did not have uh, a good like college football, pro football, college basketball, and NBA seasons. And you know the market like it's changed. I think a lot, and a lot of our stuff. I, I I'm just not sure if we're ahead of the market as much as we used to be. Um, definitely, like looking at closing line value is not the same uh, for us as as it once was. And I think that you know it's it's one of those things that like with the edges getting smaller and smaller, it's very challenging. Um, to think about whether the time spent is sort of worth the uh, amount of return that you're getting. Um, and, and one thing we talked about off the air is like having the faith in, in your process um, in sports betting is so much harder than it is when I played blackjack. So back in the days of blackjack, there was a famous hand that was in the movie and, and the, that I talk about a lot. Or basically, I bet two hands of ten thousand um, dollars doubled and split and uh, doubled again. So I ended up with fifty thousand dollars on the table. The dealer pulled the back door twenty one, and obviously because of all the small cards that came out that round, that count was even higher. And it actually looked like it was going to be the end of the shoe. So at the end of the shoe, you can you spread. So I spread to three hands of ten thousand and doubled and split again. And ended up with another fifty thousand dollars on the table. Um, the dealer had like a six up and flipped to ten, but then got a got a five to make twenty one. So I lost another fifty thousand dollars, and I lost. You know, I was twenty one years old. I had just started playing blackjack, and I lost a hundred thousand dollars in roughly like you know two minutes of playing blackjack. And I felt sick to my stomach, but. Because of the nature of blackjack, meaning like I knew that like the odds were in our favor and I knew that that there wasn't some rule change and the market wasn't changing and there wasn't some shift. Because of all that, I was able to like stick with the process and keep playing. And that weekend I won back the the $100,000 and then eventually won another 70. So I ended up leaving Vegas up $70,000 that weekend. Um, But Again, like this is one of the things that I think is fascinating, right? And one of the things that I've learned from the whole sports betting world is that the real world is not like blackjack. And as much as I want to talk about how blackjack is like this perfect, you know, petri dish to learn how to make data-driven decision making and how, you know, you should trust your process and all this kind of stuff. When you get into the real world, when you get into financial markets, when you get into you know, modeling customer behavior, anything like that, like you don't know if your models are stable over time. You don't know about things like stationarity. You don't, you don't know any of these types of things that like are um, things that should make you kind of doubt your process from time to time. So it's much harder to stay process driven um, in the world of sports betting and in the real world than it is um, in the world of blackjack. I agree. I think that's a really important distinction. And there's a reason that so many people count cards, right? I mean, because we know, you know that this is something that's going to work. And as someone, a friend of mine emailed me and asked how I did on the masters, a friend in finance. And he, and, you know, I said, I gave him the bad news. Um, And he said, um, he said, if making money consistently was easy, everyone would be doing it. Right. And so part of it, it's, I think, I think you'd agree. Anybody can learn to count cards. Assuming oh, yeah. I, I say this all the time. Right? I could teach like, anyone how to not. count cards in like exactly. 30 minutes. But yeah, but and so I think you're right that it is not like the real world. And the fact that it is a closed system, it's it's like, you know, like craps or it's like flipping a coin. Right. And so I think that a, a big part of, of something like sports betting and life in general is having being able to evaluate your model properly, not just based on outcome, but based on some sort of fundamentals driving the outcome. So you and I both look a lot at closing line value, right? Mm-hmm. Provided we're, we're not the ones. That can be tricky if you're actually moving the market yourself um, at times. Um, but we both think that that generally is a good predictor of long-term success. And so if we stop being able to beat the closing market, we're going to reevaluate. Yeah, I think that's definitely the best way to think to- to think about things, I guess, 
I guess what I wonder about sometimes is like the market and how the market has changed over time and whether, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, well, I've always said that the market is continually getting more efficient and it will continue to. I mean, yeah. you, you look at like in finance in the 1980s, um, you know, it, people starting a hedge fund then doing quantitatively driven trading made a fortune and, and people employing the same strategies now aren't going to make any money because everybody's doing that. So I think there's going to come a point where, where my background, like I'm not a, uh, I'm not a statistics PhD or I don't have a master's degree or anything like that. I was an econ major well, yeah. who took some stats courses. Like, I think there's a point where, you know, my advantage is going to disappear because I'm not going to be able to handle all this data in a way that, um, that someone with a better background could right and and given that Maybe, there's so many other there'll be so many other people doing the same thing um and you know especially if sports betting becomes legal in the united states i think the market could be there could be an influx of smarter people trying to beat this market and so i've always yeah. my, my my sort of mantra has always been that that if i basically i need to keep i, I have to keep improving just to stay the same you know, if, if I keep things the same, if I don't change my models, if I don't try to improve, I'm going to get worse. I'm going to, I'm going to make less money. Yeah. I mean, I, I, so back to your concept of like you being an econ major and not being like a stats person, blah, blah, blah. I actually like from, from a, you know, profile standpoint, find that people that study econ um, and have some level of technical acumen to you know do some level of coding that's the best sort of data scientist there is because you've like studied these types of like fundamental questions and know how to ask ask the right questions and know how to like examine the right things like i don't want to like machine learn the the shit out of all these problems i want to actually have someone fundamentally like understanding where inefficient like it's like the alan boston thing right like alan boston isn't like a stats person or anything like that but he knows the right questions to ask and then can find these people like the the, the actual like statistic skills those are a commodity it's not the skill that you have of like looking and asking questions and then finding inefficiencies that's like your superpower i mean you and i have talked about this all the time i think that you underestimate your superpower to be able to deconstruct a system and actually like understand it. And then, you know, then take the commodity skills of, you know, analytics to find an edge. I think my superpower is just that I'm motivated by like, when I lose, it makes me work harder. I'm like, okay, I'm going to make the model this much better. So that this is less likely to happen in the future. Yeah. It's a good superpower I think it, too. It's, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of people that can ask the right questions. I think, I think part of my superpower is that I grew up, I, I was a sports nerd growing up and I love the number side of sports. And so I just love it enough to be able to spend a lot of time on it. But I yeah. think that there's a lot of people that, that if they cared enough would have the skill set to do this. Yeah. Makes sense. And, but, but to your point though, about maybe not the stats PhD is not necessarily being the best people for it. I actually tried to hire someone. Um, uh, it's Sloan a few, like this is maybe five years ago. And I interviewed, I posted a job and like, I wanted someone to, basically do some NBA. Um, the two things I was trying to get into was, were tennis betting and then NBA live betting. And I basically gave them like, you know, I, I figured the best way to see if someone would be good for the job is, is to see if they'd actually, how they'd approach the actual problem that I'd have them doing, right? Um, as well as knowing what their skill set is. Um, so, you know, if they said they were an English major who had no background, but had really good, a great way of looking at it, I'd be like, okay, that's not what I'm looking for, even though you have half of half of what I want. Um, but I, I, so I gave these people this like sample data set and they didn't, I, I said, okay, you can go through. Um, if you want to, you can actually go through and actually do work on it, but you alternatively, you can just tell me what your approach would be. And it, I was like, there were a bunch of um, statistics PhDs from MIT, people that were like, you know, head and like, they blew me out of the water in terms of quantitative background and and none of them really approached things in a way that made any sense to me that would would have like added any value i was like you have this you have this advanced degree and you're basically not using it um the your method here would not actually even utilize that whereas the the one person that impressed me the most was actually um an econ guy from the university of maryland who didn't who basically was you know a hack quant guy he, he was comfortable in numbers but he wasn't he wasn't going to be able to do the advanced analysis I wanted, um, but he definitely had the brain for for this, and I wouldn't be surprised at all if he's making money betting sports right now.
Yeah, no, I, I, I told you, econ, it's a good, good major. Like if I went back to school, I'd probably study econ. Um, that would have been what I did. Like I like the way that economists think typically. Um, I have like some amazing people that work for me at Twitter that have econ backgrounds. Um, and, you know, it's like for me, this is like my little mini commercial for going and studying economics in college. I would encourage people not to study economics. I think it's a bullshit science. It's not a science at all. It's- all right. Well, I guess, I guess what it's trying to do is try to create a quantitative framework for something that is very difficult to model. And I mean, maybe, maybe that does translate, right? I mean, basically, I think, I think economists you're are bullshit yeah. artists, and I'm a bullshit artist too. So there we go. There you go. All right. Yeah. I think that's. I, I would take more engine. I would. I think engineers make the best gamblers. That, that's what I found in sports betting. It seems like every. Yeah. It seems like the most successful sports bettors quantitatively that I know are engineering backgrounds. All right. Well, I think this is a good end to this, to this conversation where you tell me that I have the best background and I tell you that you have the best background. <laughs> so it's very sweet. Um, thanks for listening to this. I hope people liked it. Um, we'll hopefully, uh, like I said, we're going to be joined next by um, Tom Habershow to talk NBA playoffs. Uh, but if you guys have good stories about your, you know, sports betting, how you cope with losing. We'd love to hear about them on Twitter. So tweet them at us. Um, but for now, let's welcome in Tom Haberstroh. Welcome to the Bet the Process podcast. Tom Haberstroh, formerly of ESPN, now of Bleacher Report, and really one of the pioneers uh, in the media space in terms of talking NBA analytics. Um, way ahead of your time, right? I mean, this is now, now it's like commonplace and, and, you're just writing about it. But back in those days, like people weren't uh, big believers and you were one of the pioneers. How, how did you get into this in the first place? Uh, well, I started out um, with a blog. It was tomsbombs.blogspot.com uh, when I was in college. And I was a, a huge um, disciple, a believer in kind of money ball and analytics, sabermetrics and baseball. And I started out at ESPN as a part-time uh uh, stats guy under Mark Simon, who's like baseball tonight's guru. And I just loved the number side of the game. I thought it was objective. And I thought a lot of the sports writing at the time in 2008 as uh, fire, fire Joe Morgan.com people readers uh, will attest to was just bad sports journalism was just bad. And it was a lot of older dudes who seemed to not be able to check their, their takes, you know, check their math. And I thought there was an opportunity. So baseball, there was a huge line to get into baseball analysis, sabermetrics. There wasn't any really besides John Hollinger at the time doing advanced analytics or sabermetrics on the basketball side. So I just saw the line, Jeff. I saw the very long line going around the building for baseball, and I saw a very short line in the NBA. And so I made the switch in about 2010, and I've been doing it ever since. That's cool. So one of the pieces that I was able to find that you put together was this idea of of playoff momentum and sort of who's hot and who's not going into the playoffs. And, and what you found was that there is very little correlation between sort of the last, you know, 10 to 15 games of, of a team season. Now, how do you think about that um, going into this year where, you know, everyone's now anointing the 76ers as the Eastern Conference representative in the championships? Do you think that that notion has made the 76ers overrated and, and really what what did you find back in the day when you sort of did this quick little study on uh, playoff momentum yeah so i did this story uh jeff for baseball initially was there was um i did an esp in the magazine story i think in 2010 was my first story ever in print and it was about baseball momentum and and i talked to brian cashman of the the new york yankees who i hated at the time cuz i'm a i'm a red sox fan but i talked to him anyway for the story because you know he had been overseeing some teams the yankee teams that stumbled into the playoffs and then just ran the table and killed everybody in the postseason. And he is very much a, a non-believer in the idea of momentum because he's lived it. There's a lot of teams that were successful in the world series came into the playoffs just looking bad, uh, injured, or just stumbling, and they got hot at the right time, and they won the World Series. So I did the NBA version, and I found similar story, which is 
the first 10 games, your win-loss record in your first 10 games of the regular season, so in October, is actually stronger associated with your postseason success than your last 10 games of the regular season. So think about that. What that means is, you know, when you talk about the last 10 games, a lot of people say, hey, this team is playing right, uh, great at the right moment. They're peaking at the right moment. A lot of times, that's the worst thing that can happen because I think maybe teams get a little bit more overconfident, like the Philadelphia 76ers right now might be feeling, and they don't stick to their, you know, core principles or their core fundamentals. And instead of playing, you know, uh, the, the brand of basketball that they should be playing over 82 games, they might just get overly confident in a ball at the end of the season and not really focus on the bigger picture. Um, so a couple things. One is the first half of the season is more predictive of your, of your postseason record than your second half of your season. And the first 10 games is more highly correlated to your postseason success than your last 10 games. So when it, when you look at this Philadelphia 76ers team, kind of think, well, I'm staying away from them. But then you also think about this. Their last like five games or so, they had no Joel Embiid. And so I think, yes, in my heart of hearts, my brain is telling me, don't pick the 76ers. My heart is saying yes, but I also know my brain is saying, dude, they don't even have Joel back. Once they get Joel back, it's a totally different game plan. Yeah, I think one of the things I think that probably, you know, my my role in life is always to like look beyond numbers, at least the, the superficial analysis of something like correlations and things like that, and try to understand the reason behind why this might be the case. And in the case of the last 10 games of the season, the last 10 games of the NBA season are a joke. Like they Garbage. are, they have become it's even more of a joke. Yeah, like you people are not even just the tanking that happens, just the teams that are slightly out of it and, and teams that are resting people and whatnot. I mean, some of the stuff that happened on the last three or four days of the season, the you know, the, the tank job that Dallas did to somehow lose to that undermanned Phoenix team by 20 something was one of the most incredible things I've ever seen in the history of tanking. So I think like from the 76ers standpoint, there is a bit of them being overrated because of how well they played, but they were definitely playing against some teams that weren't necessarily giving it their all. So, I mean, that that is one of the common narratives coming in, that the 76ers are the sleeper team in the East. The second narrative that we'll talk about in the East is that the Celtics have no chance and will lose to the Bucs. Do you think that the Celtics have no chance or do you think that Brad Stevens will perform some magic? I actually think they should be favored in this series, Jeff. And people think I'm crazy saying that, but I broke it down on Thursday on our podcast, the back-to-back podcast. We had Coach Thorpe. David Thorpe, who is an ESPN analyst and now is at Flow Sports, he, he's been around this NBA scouting for a long, long time. And there's one common denominator with the Boston Celtics that has still remained, even though Kyrie Irving's hurt, Gordon Hayward's not there. One guy who still is, Brad Stevens. And Brad Stevens, over the last two years, you saw it with Isaiah Thomas, has, um, has beaten the Pythagorean win expectation because of crunch time, just winning in crunch time, I don't know if there's any sort of scientific backing that there's something called clutch in the NBA, but I know that the Boston Celtics organization feel that Brad Stevens has a certain certain things that he does uh, make them kind of better off in clutch situations or less turnover prone in, in clutch time. Basically, the things that teams do in clutch time, Brad Stevens does extra really, really well. And there's one thing um, that people don't like about the Boston Celtics. It's Al Horford. For whatever reason, the a- average NBA fan thinks that he's a fraud because he, I think, because he doesn't average more than 12 points a game. But in this series, you keep, I, I'm going to bet on the, uh, if I was betting, I would bet on the Boston Celtics to win in seven games. I think it's going to go long because of Brad Stevens' ability to uh, organize an NBA top tier defense around Al Horford. Look, they lost Marcus Smart. They don't have a a Rudy Gobert or a Joel Embiid or a Shaq Manning, the back line. And yet they have the NBA's best defense points per possession allowed in the NBA this season. And that's not Kyrie. That's not Gordon Hayward. That's strictly Brad Stevens being able to organize an NBA uh, top tier defense. That's still the case in this series. And I think Al Horford is criminally underrated. I still got the Boston Celtics in this one. 
Yeah, the, the gambling markets actually agree with you. The Celtics uh, opened up as a minus 140 point, a minus 140 favorite, meaning like if you're going to wager on the Celtics you, to win the series, you need $140 to win 100. That's actually like a relatively short line, like home court. The home court team should be more like 160. But that's actually been bet up all the way now where the Celtics are more like a minus 175 um, like minus 175 in terms of the pricing or the probability. So the, the gambling markets agree with you that the Celtics should be the favorites in this series and should win this series. Um, I would guess that it will keep going up because the the narrative now is becoming like, listen, the, the Celtics still have Brad Stevens. Um, let's, let's move on to the, the other narrative in the East, which is that the Cavaliers will become playoff Cavaliers, LeBron will become playoff LeBron, and they should be the favorite to win the East over, you know, Philly, the Celtics, and the Raptors. Agree or disagree? Um, I Here's what I'll say about Cleveland. I think if you go to teamrankings.com, this was the most underperforming team in the last 10 years. This Cavs team, that by against the spread, they have not covered against the spread more than any team in any season over the last 10 years. So for whatever reason, and maybe this is LeBron or maybe this is Ty Lue or this is Isaiah Thomas, whatever it is, they were just very disappointing and they did not cover more times in their games than any other team over the last decade or so. So I think it's a really confusing team, this this Cavaliers team. I think LeBron James is very consistent in terms of his offensive production, but defensively, he doesn't bring it, I don't think, until the playoffs begin. And it's very hard to judge a LeBron James team because defensively, I think he just kind of loafs around and puts it in cruise control until playoff time, and then he brings it. And, and he, he blocks Andre Iguodala at the rim on a fast break in 2016 because he knows that like I'm not going to waste energy in the regular season on defense if that no one really cares about the defense until playoff time. So I think that is fascinating because typically LeBron's teams in the playoffs beat the spread. Um, and that's that's interesting to me is that I think he kind of sandbags it in the regular season and then actually turns on the Jets defensively uh, and actually gets them to play better defense. So I think LeBron James should be favored over, say, Toronto. Um, I, I would pick Cleveland over Toronto. I might pick the 76ers because of their, um, because they've been really great this season. And I think they'll get Joel and B back. I think it would be a push between Cleveland and Philly, but I, I'm not a big believer in Toronto. I actually have the wizards upsetting them in the first round. That's my hot take. Yeah. So, I mean, you get, you get, um, the, Oh, I like that hot take. You can actually get five to one, meaning like you bet, hundred dollars to win 500 on uh, the wizards to win that first series. And, and I agree with you. I think it, that is a, um, it is a very, very even eight one um, as far as eight ones go, as far as they go. In terms of right? what you're, yeah. I mean, well, and the, I mean, the big question is going to be John wall, right? Like if you didn't know it, if like, let's say you fell asleep this entire NBA season and you woke up and you said, okay, Washington's full strength, Toronto's full strength, Washington and Toronto are playing in the playoffs. Who is the favorite? And half of the people would say Toronto and half of the people would say the Wizards because, you know, this it, in other years, this has been like a four or five matchup and where, you know, it's it's going to be a dogfight and maybe Toronto because they have home court, it should be the favorite. But sure, so to me, it should not be this this prohibitive favorite that Toronto is right now. And, you know, one of the things I think that's interesting with Toronto, too, is one of the reasons they were so good this year was because of their bench and their bench unit. Their bench unit played fast. It played effectively. How much do you think that that is going to become muddled or dampened in the playoffs when rotation shortened? I think it's totally a thing. Um, I think one of the one of the things you see in the NBA is that in playoff time, the, the rotations shrink. And if your depth one through 10 is fantastic and if that's your calling card, that's not a very strong calling card in the playoffs. Typically, we see the teams that have either the best player in the series or the best three players in the series. Are, it's more predictive than who has the best 10th player in the series. So I think you're absolutely right. That's one of the reasons why I'm kind of fading the uh, the Toronto Raptors is just because I think in playoff time, you're going to be dependent on the top two, top three players. 
And those top two players, DeMar DeRozan and Kyle Lowry, have, uh, for lack of a better term, shit the bed in the playoffs where they uh, their PER and all their production metrics production metrics fall off a little bit come playoff time. I don't know whether that's mental or if that's um, sustainable going forward, if that's just fluke. But what I do know is I don't think they're a very strong number one seed. And I think that they are vulnerable from that perspective. And if you look at the other side, Washington Wizards with John Wall coming back, do you know how many games John Wall played against the Toronto Raptors in the regular season? Zero. They played four games against the Toronto Raptors, and in all four games, John Wall wasn't healthy to play. He's back on the floor. He makes them better. There's this myth that somehow John Wall and Bradley Beal hate each other and that they they he ruins the team and the Wall-less Wizards are actually better. No, there's no math or any sort of evidence that suggests they're a worse team with John Wall out there. In fact... When those two guys are playing together, Brad Beal and John Wall, they're plus 4.4 per per 100 possessions, meaning they outscore opponents by four points every 100 possessions with that duo on the floor. With just Bradley Beal and no John Wall, that's one plus one per 100 possessions. And without John Wall, it goes down to negative 1.7. So he makes them better. And I think people are sleeping on the Wizards' ability to, to win this series because they just assume that John Wall, for whatever reason, is too hurt to play or he he mucks up Bradley Beal. I don't think that's true. All the evidence suggests that he makes them a better team. I just think the narrative around the Washington Wizards, I think that's a very, very good opportunity if you're looking to bet a team. Yeah, I like that. Um, there's a lot of, there's recency bias there because, you know, you had a situation where Wall went out um, and, you know, Severansky, they, they played so well, all this kind of stuff. Everyone was like, this is, this is the, you know, this is, this, this is a great team. And then all of a sudden the last, what, 10, 15, you know, days of the season, they started playing really poorly. And everyone remembers that game that they blew that huge lead to um, Cleveland. But the reality is they, they had that lead in the first place. So that alone should tell you that they are very competitive with the elite teams in the East. And, and I agree with you. I think that, um, as far as, you know, the odds go, like whenever, whenever we think about these things, I mean, you have to think about the odds and the odds of being able to get five to one on Washington to win this thing. Do they win this series, you know, one out of every five times? I would think so. So, yeah, you know, I think, I think it's, it's decent value. Uh, let's move on to the West. Um, in the West, obviously we have a lot of unknowns because of injuries my question to you is assuming, and this is a huge assumption, but assuming a 100% healthy Warriors team, which we probably won't get at all this, this playoffs, because even when Steph comes back, you can't say that he's going to be 100% healthy. But let's just say he is, and let's say the Rockets are 100% healthy. Who do you favor in that series and, and by how much? Yeah, uh, 100% healthy for both teams. I'm going with the Warriors. And uh, I, I just think that they've got an extra gear. We've seen it before in the finals. We've seen it before with this group. Um, I think for, for a Warriors team, the 82-game season is such a drag. And they don't have the sort of motivation to bust their ass defensively every single night. Whereas the Rockets did in the regular season. Because the Rockets were trying to prove themselves. And they had Chris Paul and James Harden. And they didn't know how that was going to be, so they needed to prove themselves. They had a lot more motivation in the regular season to go hard every night because, hey, let's get that number one seed and prove all the doubters wrong. The Warriors, they've already proved the doubters wrong. They've already won the championship a couple times, so I think they are just waiting for this postseason to get started. And I know um, people are looking at Steph Curry and wondering if he's going to be healthy or not come, uh, you know, in in this series. I think he's going to be just fine. He's dealt with this injury before. The Warriors have dealt with this injury before last year with, with Kevin Durant having a sprained MCL. I think the Warriors are going to be fine. I'm still not ready to pick the Houston Rockets over the Warriors to win this, this NBA Finals. It's a lot closer than I thought in the regular season uh, to start the regular season, but I'm still going with the Warriors. Yeah, I mean, I think that if, if you would... One of the things that we try to do as, as sports bettors is to almost like divorce ourselves from what we've seen recently. And, and in this case, that's almost like the entire regular season. So if you go back to the beginning of the year, the Warriors were prohibitive favorites against the field. And now you can get them, you know, at plus money, meaning like you can bet, 
win more money than you wager on the Warriors. Um, I think it's plus 130 almost to win the win, which is like almost if someone had told you that at the beginning of the season, it would have been unheard of. I know that there's a lot of injury concerns, et cetera. Um, do you think that there's any chance that Kawhi comes back and plays in these playoffs? You know, I think there's a slim chance. I, as, a, as a numbers guy, I don't want to say absolute. It's like 0%. I think there's a 5 to 10% chance that he comes back. I figured if he was going to come back at all, it would have been about a month ago. And since that didn't happen, I don't think he's coming back. At least it would, sh- it would shock me if Kawhi Leonard comes back, specifically because of Pop and his words about a month ago when he said, even if he does come back with like a week left in the regular season, I'm not so sure that's fair to do to the rest of the team to integrate someone like him and throw off the rest of the team and what we've done over 82 games at the last minute. Now, if you step back and kind of think about that, that's an amazing call by or an amazing move assertion from an NBA coach. I mean, I can't imagine anyone outside of Bill Belichick or John Calipari or Mike Krzyzewski saying something similar and getting away with it. Because think about it. If LeBron James was out for basically the whole year and he wanted to come back the last week of the season, he's coming back, right? But Kawhi Leonard, who was a top three MVP candidate, he was my MVP last year, coming back this late in the game and the coach says, you know what, even if you do come back, we're good. I thought that was fascinating. And it suggested to me that it's not going to happen. I don't think it's going to happen. And Kawhi Leonard, I don't know why he's out. I don't know if it's about his knee or his quad or if it's about LaMarcus Aldridge or if it's about the Spurs in general or the trainers. I don't know, but I don't see him coming back. Do you think that that statement by Pop was just a little bit of mind games to try to sort of like almost motivate him to come back? Or do you think that that it basically just... I agree with you. It's a it's a strong statement. And part of the reason that Pop can say that is he has the success and the credibility and the job security to say what he means. Um, I think it's a very galvanizing thing for the team that's there. Um, but I wonder, you know, what kind of mind games that Pop is trying to play with Kawhi in saying that. Um, if If he does not come back, which we say he doesn't, do the Warrior, I mean, do the Spurs have any chance against the Warriors, assuming that there's no Steph in the first round, which I'm guessing there isn't going to be. Yeah, so I think I think the Warriors. I think in that series, it's going to be Warriors in in five. Um, I think just because they've been sleepwalking this entire ser- this entire season, and I think Steve Kerr has just been waiting for them to to wake up, and I think the playoff bell being run, I think that will be doing it. Um, I think Golden State is going to win that series. I just don't think they have enough. Uh, San Antonio has enough firepower offensively around LaMarcus Aldridge, and they've had a pretty good handle on the Spurs in years past. It, look, in this regular season, they were 3-1 and one against the Spurs, and the one loss was when they rested everybody. So I think the Warriors are going to win that. I think Houston's going to sweep uh, four games for Minnesota. I think Minnesota's defense is trash. I think they're tired. I think Jimmy Butler is... His health has to be questioned by playing that many minutes after coming back from that knee injury. I think Portland, that'll be a tight series. Utah, I got Utah on six. And Portland, New Orleans, that one's like a, basically a coin flip for me. I don't know what to think about this Pelicans team. In the regular season against the Portland Trailblazers, they played four games and only five of the 58 lineups that they played played in two of them two of those games. So we like no lineups you saw in that regular season matchup between the Portland trailblazers and the, and the new Orleans Pelicans we're going to see in this um, in this postseason. So you can just throw out a lot of it. A lot of it was boogie. Um, not a lot of it was Nikola Mirotic. And I just think that series is a coin flip for me, but golden state, I think they will be okay. Um, we saw this with Kevin Durant last year, Steph Curry, the year before that, I think they will be okay. Barring, <laughs> Draymond Green getting suspended for game five. Yeah, I mean, I think when you go back to Portland, that one is very interesting to me because there's definitely this notion that Portland is stumbling into the playoffs, which we've kind of determined doesn't really mean much. There's this notion that New Orleans has has played incredibly well um, since getting Miritich. And, you know, for whatever reason, Rondo seems to have, have found himself there to some degree. Um, New Orleans definitely beat up on some teams in the last few weeks of the season that were not, you know, like the, the Warriors game that they played, the Warriors mentally were not right. Um, you know, they played, they got to clinch against, uh, 
Clippers team that was, you know, basically playing their G League team. So they've gotten the advantage of the scheduling down the road. And I wonder if that makes has made the Pelicans almost overrated going into these playoffs, where now where a team like Portland at home should be able to take care of business. I mean, I, I wonder. So a couple of questions. One, you mentioned Minnesota and how bad they are at defense. That has continued to be a trend. How is that possible when their coach is the guy that's basically the one that revolutionized NBA basketball defense in this this era? Okay, so there are a couple things here. Yeah. One, he revolutionized strong side defense where, where you load up on the ball and just throw multiple guys at the ball and it's really hard to penetrate that defense. That, I think, is an old-fashioned... It happened quick, but the three-point shot is such a neutralizer for that because if you can swing the ball weak side to the corner and hit a three, you can't go strong side. And I think that's a really tough defense to do in 2018 because if you load up on one side of the ball and you have a LeBron James or a James Harden uh, or there's there's a bunch of players that can make that swing pass, it's done. I mean, you have to be able to rotate so quickly to neutralize the swing pass and the and the ball movement and the three-point shot. I think it's really hard to play that kind of defense. Also, transition defense basically neutralizes it again. Like strong side defense that that Thibodeau uh, was the architect for, it really works in half court, but you, if you're running in transition and having a quick three, you're done. You can't do that. You can't succeed that way. So I think schematically is what I've, t- I've heard from scouts and coaches. It's a whole different ball game than it was in 2010 when he started that with the, with the, um, with the Chicago bulls and had Derek Rose as the MVP and shocked the world to get to 60 wins. I also think the second thing is Carl Anthony towns just isn't a good defender and he hasn't been a good, good defender. And it boggles my mind why people think that he is the next like best player in the NBA, because did we forget about that other side of the ball? You know, like when we talk about Joel Embiid, he's so great, but he's so great because he plays both ends and, and Carl Anthony Towns hasn't shown the ability to anchor a good defense yet. In fact, most of the defenses he's anchored have not been good. And it's hard to disentangle what, what's uh, Tom Thibodeau and what's Carl Anthony Towns. But I'll tell you this, he is not an elite defender. And I haven't seen it yet in the NBA. It might be there somewhere lurking and maybe another coach can bring it out of him. But this is a bottom three defense in two years or bottom five in the last two years. I don't think that defense is is going to be good enough to make Houston sweat even for a game. It's interesting. So then, um, what about now? We were we were kind of talking about it, it. You know, from what you say, it sounds almost like Houston is like the worst matchup for Minnesota because they are going to get a ton of threes. Um, and and what you hear about Tibbs, obviously from scouts, is that he's great, but he has a hard time adjusting. So this idea that the NBA has shifted and he's not. I mean, just just look at the way he plays rotations, right? We, we know there's plenty of proof right now that resting guys is important and not having them play all the minutes. But for some reason, he is resisting that and wants to play these guys way more than they should. Um, going back to that Portland series, uh, Portland became very trendy after they beat um, Golden State a couple times. So you you think that you think that is going to be a toss up of a series? You think that's going to be a dogfight that's going to go seven? Yeah, I think so, but I don't feel great about it. That's one of the series that I just, I don't have a great feel for. Um, and I think it is because we just don't have that much data on this matchup in general is because they're in the regular season. They're just, you can almost throw it out because a lot of the matchups had boogie in it and they didn't have Miritich. And I think just in general, uh, the Pelicans have played better defense in the second half of the year. And, and again, I don't want to, I don't want to go all recency bias on this, but I just think that there's a lot of uncertainty with this Pelicans team. They're the fastest team in the NBA, and that creates a lot more possessions and a lot more uncertainty and variance. Uh, I think the Portland Trailblazers are a really great team. Dame Lillard is awesome, and I think if Nurkic plays, uh, they can be an elite defense. So uh, I just have a funny feeling this one's going long. I still favor Portland in this one, even though Anthony Davis is such a transcendent talent, Uh, but I still go Portland on this one. Got it. All right, final question for you. What is the hottest pepper? Duh. Um, the hottest pepper is most definitely the one that's about 20 minutes away from my house here in Charlotte. It's the Carolina Reaper. Okay. Um, it is hundreds of times hotter than a habanero, which is about a hundred times hotter. So I've done 
five habaneros um, for this ALS pepper challenge that we started. You want to tell we us a little bit about that real quickly? Yeah, it's a, it's, I'd be happy to. It's $560,000 that we've raised uh, for ALS research, Jeff. And that's because we just decided as a family, when my mom was diagnosed in October with ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, we wanted to do something about it. So we decided, hey, Ice bucket challenge was really fun because people dumped ice water on their heads. What if we turned up the heat and did a pepper challenge where people did the same thing, but eating peppers. And uh, it's been a lot of fun to see the videos and it's a lot been a lot of fun to see the, the money being raised in honor of my mother who's doing well. She's looking forward to the NBA playoffs um, and looking forward to warmer weather up in Connecticut. And I think this is a, a really cool thing. Um, I can't, I really can't believe it. Our goal, Jeff was $50,000 raised for ALS research because there is no cure, um, right. for ALS. And we're hoping to find one and a half million dollars is going to do a great, great, great job trying to get us closer to finding a cure. Yeah. It's a terrible, terrible disease. I think, um, you know, a lot of us have been touched by that. And so it's, it's pretty amazing to see what you've been able to do with that. So I, I really, uh, tip my hat to you for that. So, uh, thank you a lot have, for the time, you, Tom. What's that? Are you good? Are you good at spicy foods or are you? I, I, you know, I was thinking about that um, and I've thought about it because obviously I've seen you on, on your Twitter. I, I, I'm good with it. I'll, I'll, I'll uh, you know, as part of the uh, payment for you being on this podcast, I will do my own version of the, you know, the ALS pepper challenge. I'll get it up there. I will say within the next week and a half. Um, let me, you don't have to, you. you don't have to, that wasn't me pressuring you into doing no, no, it. it was, there was zero pressure there. I, <laughs> I was thinking about announcing that anyways, as part of this podcast. So, oh, um, cool. I, you know, I, I definitely, um, have been following it. Um, I've had some good friends whose uh, parents have been impacted by, um, ALS. And so, it is something that I, I do think a lot about. And I, again, like tip my hat to you for, for doing something that uh, raises awareness, um, in a fun way around it. Thank you. Thank you, my man. Yeah. And I appreciate you inviting me on the podcast. This was, this was really fun. It's always good to, um, to have someone who knows this much about just analytics and sports in general. There are a few people in this world that that Venn diagram overlaps in the middle. And there's a very few number of people where it, uh, where you can make a living or at least know as much as you do about, uh, analytics and statistics and, um, the the book you wrote, I still remember reading it uh, on on your days in in blackjack, and I think it's a it's a it's an amazing field to be in the analytics and and predictive analytics for sports, and I think this is uh this is where you get this is where the rubber meets the road come playoff time because as much as we like to say that uh you know predictions are stupid and you can't predict the future, I think this is really 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 fun when you put your your bets or your picks down on a piece of paper and you revisit them later and try to review why you got them wrong, I'm pretty sure I'm going to be wrong on some of these picks, but I hope I'm not wrong on the Wizards one because that one could be really fun to to beat my chest about, Wizards in seven. There you go. That's the, that's the pick, Wizards in seven. So thanks a lot for the time, Tom. Uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, Jeff. Really appreciate it.